Welcome back to our study of 1 Kings. We are in 1 Kings 18, verses 20 to 46 today. We are looking at the showdown between Baal and the Lord as Elijah summons the prophets of Baal to have a contest, as it were, to determine or reveal, we would say, who the real God is, whether Baal is the real God and therefore worthy of worship, or whether the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the real God and worthy of worship. We saw last time how this showdown was set up, how Elijah was told by the Lord to uh, go appear before King Ahab. And so now uh, Elijah and Ahab have met, and we pick up the story in verse 20. It's worth remembering uh, in verses 17 and 18 and 19 that uh, when Elijah and Ahab met, that Ahab called Elijah the troubler of Israel, right? But Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So Ahab, remember, was an idolater. His wife Jezebel was an idolater. Uh, Ahab's father before him had also been a wicked king. And so the bad things that are happening in Israel, the drought in particular, is a judgment on Israel because of this idolatry and this rebellion against the Lord. So it's not Elijah's fault. Right? It's Ahab's fault. And so Elijah told Ahab in verse 19, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel being Ahab's wife. So she's supporting these prophets of false gods. And uh, Elijah says, bring those prophets to Mount Carmel. Uh, Bring all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel. And they have... A showdown. So verse 20 says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So here's the call that Elijah gives to the people of Israel. The call is you need to decide who the real God is. And whoever the real God is, worship that God. Don't be going back and forth. Don't be indecisive. Decide. And if Baal is God, then worship Baal. And if the Lord, Yahweh, is God, then worship Him. Right? The Bible doesn't tell us to go along with the people around us and worship whoever the people around us are worshiping because, you know, there's lots of gods and it's really not a big deal anyways. Just do whatever seems to work. Do whatever seems to be convenient. Do whatever keeps you out of trouble. No, the Bible claims that there is one true and living God and that every other thing that people worship is not a God and is not worthy of worship. And so the Bible calls us to worship the one true God and only the one true God. And that's what Elijah is calling the people of Israel to do. They are to determine 
which one of these gods, so to speak, is the real one? If Baal is a real god and is really worthy of worship, then go ahead and worship him. But if he's not, and if Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the real God, then worship him. But don't be limping between these two different opinions. Don't be indecisive. Don't be going back and forth. Worship the God who is the real God. Then, so verse 22 says, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, and left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So that sort of gives us a sense, probably, of what things are like in Israel, that Elijah is severely outnumbered in terms of the number of prophets representing each god. You've got Elijah in this corner representing Yahweh, and you've got 450 prophets of Baal over here in this corner representing Baal. That's probably indicative of who the people in Israel are actually listening to, who they're actually worshiping. It's certainly indicative of what Ahab and Jezebel think about who ought to be worshipped, but it probably also reflects what many of the people in Israel are doing. Now we know from chapter 19 that God had preserved 7,000 people in Israel who had not bowed their knee to Baal. Don't know what the population of Israel was at the time, but I suspect it was a lot more than 7,000. So uh, Elijah is outnumbered. He draws attention to that fact. Right? And then he says, verse 23, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So now Elijah lays out the challenge. Here's how the, this is going to work. Here's how the showdown is going to work. Each group, even though Elijah's not really a group, he's by himself, but each side gets a bull. And each side is going to prepare that bull as a sacrifice, as an offering to the God that they worship. And neither of them are going to burn their sacrifice. Instead, they are going to each call upon their God, and the God who answers with fire to consume the sacrifice, that is the one who is the real God. And everybody who heard that said, that sounds like a good plan. That sounds, that sounds fair. Those terms are reasonable. So here we go. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar. Remember that word from before? Why you, you, why, uh, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? They limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, 
Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So the prophets of Baal spend hours from morning till noon is probably from at least nine o'clock in the morning until noon. We're not told specifically, but we're probably talking at least a good two or three hours, perhaps even longer than that. And uh, just, you know, guessing, right? But probably a good two or three hours. And so throughout the morning up until noon, they are crying out to their God saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But in the middle of verse 26, it says there was no voice. No one answered. No one's paying attention. No one's home. There's, there is no God to hear them and answer them when they call out to Baal. And Elijah begins to mock them, to make fun of them, right? And he mocks the idea of their God being uh, much like what we read about the Greek and Roman gods in mythology, very human, right? Maybe your God is busy thinking about something. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's even relieving himself. Maybe he's, he's busy doing something else. Maybe you need to wake him up. Maybe he's sleeping and he can't hear you. All of those ideas are completely foreign to what the Bible tells us about the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who is spirit, who is not like us. Right? The Bible at times will use language describing God in human-like terms, like talking about God's mighty arm, but it never says he actually has an arm. It's just trying to help us understand God's power, God's strength, and so on. But when Elijah talks about the God uh, that the prophets of Baal are calling upon and what he's like, right? he's mocking him as though he's a very human-like God, and he's not listening to them. Right? They continue... It says they, they raved on, right? They're, they're cutting themselves, presumably, uh, to, to try to get the God's attention, to get Baal's attention. Uh, and it says they went on um, as midday passed until the time of the offering of the oblation. So the morning is gone, noon is gone, we're into the afternoon, and, and, and uh, who knows how much longer they're continuing to call out to their God. But verse 29 says again, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. The point there is extremely clear. There is no Baal. There are 450 prophets, but there's no God to hear them. No God who answers them. No God who responds with fire. No God who demonstrates his presence in any way, form, or fashion. So verse 30 says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. Now, uh, there are a couple things going on here. One, Isaiah, excuse me, Elijah rebuilds the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Why is this significant? Why is this included in the story? For a couple of reasons, I think. One is because Isaiah, as a faithful worshiper of the Lord, he's concerned with worshiping the Lord rightly. The Lord makes very clear throughout uh, the, the law in particular that there are certain ways that he is to be worshipped, certain ways that are acceptable, and there are ways that are not. And so Isaiah is, or excuse me, Elijah is not just going to throw up an altar some some way somehow uh, and worship God on that. No, he restores an altar that was built to the Lord in order to worship the Lord there. Second thing, second reason I think why Elijah does this is to make it clear which God he is worshiping, which God he is offering this sacrifice to. Notice that this altar is uh, made up of 12 stones, right? In verse 31, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. In other words, the 12 stones symbolize the 12 tribes of Jacob. And Jacob is the one who is renamed Israel. He is the third in the line beginning with Abraham that received the initial promises from God about um, uh, for his chosen people, right? That they would be blessed, that they would be numerous, that they would live in the land of Canaan. God revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so by rebuilding this altar with these 12 stones, Elijah is saying, this is the God that I'm calling upon. Right? This is the God that I am asking to respond in fire. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? The God who revealed himself to our fathers. So that's the first thing. He rebuilds this altar. And then second of all, he has the sacrifice and the wood doused with water over and over and over. And the purpose there seems to be to make really, really clear that if this sacrifice is consumed, it will not be through any kind of accident or trickery. That this will be a divine event. Elijah is not, you know, sort of hiding a match somewhere, as it were, uh, that he can, you know, flick on to the wood when nobody's looking so that it'll catch fire. This is not about sleight of hand. This is not about trickery. This is not about Elijah outmaneuvering the prophets of Baal with some cleverness. No, this is going to have to be a supernatural event for this sacrifice soaked in water so that even the trench around the altar has water standing in it. That only God could consume all of that, burn all of that up as Elijah is calling upon him to do. So then verse 36 says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, let's pay careful attention before we see what happens to what Elijah is saying here. First of all, notice how clear and specific he is about who he is calling upon. He calls upon the Lord. And you see that all caps Lord there. We've seen that, I think, throughout this chapter. Whenever you see that all caps Lord, typically that stands for the divine name, Yahweh. That's the God, the name um, that God uh, gave his people, right? That's his personal name. Uh, that distinguishes him, one of the ways he's distinguished from uh, the other gods that different nations worship, right? God, um, at least the way we use it in English, is, is a fairly generic term, right? But Yahweh makes clear which God we're talking about. Uh, another way he does that is by saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, right? That's a, that's a way of naming this God, a, a way that God told his people all the way back in Exodus chapter 3 with Moses at the burning bush. This is who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, who was renamed Israel. So he makes very clear who he's calling upon. And then here's what, here's what Elijah is asking. One, he says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. So the reason I'm calling upon you, he says, is because I want all these people to know for certain who the real God is, that you, Yahweh, are God. Baal's not God. Elijah's not doing this so that people will be impressed with him. Elijah is doing this because he wants people to know who alone is worthy of their worship. And the second thing he says, I want them to know that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Now that's important too, because this showdown was not Elijah's idea and God just sort of went along with it, right? Like Elijah came up with this plan and he, and here he is, he's come to the climactic moment and he's saying, oh God, I hope you respond to this. I hope this works because I put everything out, you know, on the line and your name is at stake and so I hope you answer. No, Elijah's saying, I did this at your word. This is God's idea. Uh, And so Elijah, we would presume, has confidence that God is going to answer because this is God's plan to even have this showdown in the first place. All right, so, oh, and then another thing. In verse 37, he says, Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Right? He's already talked about that. And then he also says, And that you have turned their hearts back. Uh, That's uh, what Elijah wants to see happen, right? Is if God shows himself to be the real God, that this will bring a turning of Israel back to the Lord. Now, what happens? Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them 
And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So God hears Elijah's prayer. Of course, we're not surprised by that. But God hears Elijah's prayer. He responds with fire. And not only is he the only God who responded with fire, but his fire consumes not only the offering, but also the wood and the stones and the dust and the water. It's crystal clear this is a divine act. This is God himself consuming this offering by, uh, by fire, right? His fire consuming this offering and demonstrating to everybody clearly that he alone is God. Now, this, uh, this part of the story ends with the slaughter of the prophets of Baal. Um, if you wonder, why does Elijah put these prophets to death? Why is that the consequence? If you go back to Deuteronomy 13, uh, and you read there, God makes it very clear in the law that anybody who tries to lead his people away from him to worship another god is to be put to death. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament. Anybody who tried to lead uh, God's people away from him was to be put to death. Now, we don't do that uh, anymore in New Testament times, but here's what that still communicates to us. It is a very, very serious thing to lead somebody away from the Lord. You don't want to do that. And the flip side of that is, how important is it for us to recognize and acknowledge and point people to the true God? We, as much as we know that there's one God and as much as we know that he alone is worthy of our worship, it does not often land on us with as much weight as it should that there is one creator, that there is one God, one divine being, one who made everything, who made us, to whom we owe absolutely everything, our existence, our life, our breath, every blessing, every good uh, thing we have, every day that we get to uh, wake up and breathe and have life, every good thing we see, every good thing we experience, every uh, good bit of food that we eat, every good thing we have comes to us from Him. And He deserves our thanks, our worship, our praise, our adoration, our obedience. And that is a weighty, weighty thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. It's not a burden. Right? For those of us who, who know the Lord and love the Lord and worship the Lord, it's not a burden. But it is a weight, right? It is something heavy and serious and significant. It is not just sort of a personal choice, right? That whether we worship God or not. It is, it is not just a, some people need to go to church and, and, and be involved in religious stuff and some people don't. No, there is a God. There is a God and He is worthy of our worship. He is the reason why we are here and we owe everything to Him.
And if you say, well, that may be, but I wasn't there on Mount Carmel, and I didn't see the fire come down from heaven, and for all I know, somebody made up that story just to try to persuade people that the God of Israel is the real God. What has God done that would make it clear to the whole world that He really exists? Here's what He did. He sent His own Son into the world as a man to die on the cross and rise from the dead. Almost nobody denies that Jesus of Nazareth lived. Most people, even who don't believe in Jesus, believe that He lived Who've, people who've looked into it anyway, believe that he lived and even believe that he died on the cross. His disciples who were devastated when he died, after his resurrection and his ascension into heaven and, and the sending of the Spirit, they put their lives on the line, literally, to tell people that Jesus was alive, that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was the Savior promised to Israel. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has been saving people. Jesus has been drawing people to himself. People have been following Jesus and worshiping Jesus. God himself showed up at a particular point in history so that we would know who he is and so that everyone who trusts in his son would be saved and reconciled to him that they might live in his presence forever. The Lord, he is God. Amen.